Welcome back to another edition of EW's Game of Thrones podcast. I'm editor-at-large James Hibbard. And I'm senior writer Darren Franich. And we're going to be breaking down what I think has to be the happiest Game of Thrones episode ever. I mean, you have all these reunions, you have hugs, you have smiles, you have new alliances. We have like one uplifting moment after another, aside from an occasional uh, mass murder, you know, here or there. We're going to be getting into that. We're going to be getting into also uh, the big moment at the end. Uh, with uh, Danny burning down the Dosh Colleen and uh, the big Stark reunion too. So let's do this a little differently, and we'll start at the end. We'll start with Danny's big sequence, which, uh, you know, I think we all expected, okay, she's eventually going to get out of this situation she's in, but we didn't really know how she was going to do it. Uh, I think a lot of theories uh, surrounded this idea of, okay, Drogon is going to swoop in and save her, you know, again, just like at the end of season five, and really how kind of disappointing would that have been, you know, since we've already seen that already. And I think what the writers came up with here is such a clever way of making it more something that she owned and she did and she came up with and plays off, as we said, you know, the sort of superpower that she's had that we haven't really thought much about, but we've seen consistent evidence of. Yeah, James, you know, you had a great interview with Amelia Clark that is currently on EW.com that I think really speaks to the power of this scene. She's an interesting character, Danny, because she'll spend a lot of a typical season not necessarily doing very much in terms of, you know, she's dealing with bureaucratic matters in Marine, or she's trying to find her dragons, or she's, you know, steadily building up an army. And then once per season, she'll always have a moment that is just a complete whole season showstopper. And that was very much this moment. I liked it for a couple of reasons. One of which is we talked a lot in uh, the first episode of the season about how we were kind of back into the kind of culture of the Dothraki. And even more so than in season one, that culture was just portrayed as being so patriarchal and almost as if a fraternity were a kind of like gigantic tribe of, of people. And I really liked how her speech just felt so... First and foremost, like, oddly kind of feminist in a way, but more than anything, it was, you know, in this sort of site within this sort of tent that is, you know, typically filled with these old women who are kind of left over and disposed by this culture. I I loved that she literally just sort of destroyed the entire sort of ruling class of that culture all in one fell swoop. I was kind of wondering, though, if she's been immune to fire this whole time, like, why doesn't she just always, like, walk into rooms full of people who want to kill her and and just set it on fire? That seems like a solution to most of her problems. (laughs) There's a certain moment there where she's like knocking everything over that it's like, well, if someone runs up to her with a knife, she's sort of screwed, right? You know, or, or, and when she walks out, 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 out of the temple at the end and all the people are just standing there, I was just waiting for somebody to yell, she's a witch, kill her. And then it's like all over, you know, there has to be a certain amount of awe and respect of, of, of her fire abilities to, to really, you know, sell that and, and make that work, which, which, which of course they had. And yeah, and to your earlier point, in terms of the uh, you know taking down the the patriarchal uh, uh, society of Calbros, pretty much since Danny came back this season, every scene with her and these guys, it's just been this ratcheting up of this extremely arrogant and sexist and rapey group, and they keep on turning that dial up more and more and more, and she's just sort of standing there taking it, and so there's been this like nice build 
buildup of this, you know, from the very beginning of the season. And they then they just sort of end it in the most basic, primal, emotionally satisfying way where she's like, yeah, I'm just going to burn all of you alive. I really liked it, too, because, you know, um, a lot of the storytelling in this episode that's centered on the Dosh Colleen, I-, I thought was so smart. I mean, you know, we're obviously in a storytelling area now that George R. R. Martin hasn't gotten to yet. But I really felt like the two showrunners who wrote this episode, when we first went to the Dosh Colleen uh, with Danny, it seemed as if, oh, this is a really bad place and nobody there likes her but this week I liked how we really saw that you know the women there you know they seemed really interesting and uh, you know uh, the sort of older uh, former Khaleesi said oh well you know here at least our lives have meaning like you know they they listen to us here Danny kind of got to know the the very young former Khaleesi who she became a Khaleesi when she was 12 and then her cow died when she was 16 and so she's already in this sort of Khaleesi retirement home it spoke to me about something that I forget sometimes with Danny, that so many other uh, people on the show who want to sit on the Iron Throne and who want power, you know, they, they want power for power's sake. And from the beginning, Danny is always kind of the person who's like, you know, I don't just want power. Like, you know, in this situation, I don't just want my dragon to come up and, you know, burn everything to the ground and leave. Like, I want to actually, like, be the person who empowers people. And I, I want to sort of be the person who, you know, makes an army out of people who would have, before this situation, would have been slaves or or uh, would have been weak. It, so much of what she is doing in the far east of uh, the world right now has odd echoes of what you know someone like the High Sparrow is talking about. Um, it's just that you know with with Danny she's she's much more likable, so we sort of like it when she stages her uh, you know underclass revolutions. <laughs> Springing off that, what did you think of the use of nudity in the scene? Because that's something obviously a lot of people are, are talking about online. I thought it was interesting, especially, uh, and, you know, Amelia Clark went into this a little bit in your interview, um, that, you know, that was like no body double. Uh, That was the first time that she has been nude on the show in quite a while. I think it's interesting because, uh, you know, she kind of specifically said that she really wanted to sort of own that scene. And and so often TV in general and Game of Thrones in in particular, I feel like it, it can get dinged for sort of using nudity just for the sake of, you know, the most sort of lowest common denominator reasons for using nudity. I mean, this is this is the show that, you know, kind of coined the term sex position back in the day, which is still one of the best words ever, even if it's not necessarily the best storytelling method ever. Um, I did sort of like how in this situation it seemed to me like, you know, yeah, maybe this moment was trying to sort of reclaim that to a certain extent. Like, you know, the first time we saw Danny and she was like walking into the pool of hot water, she was just at such a complete low point and, you know, she was the victim and the slave of her brother and of so many other people. And, you know, by now, obviously, Mm -hmm. she's gone so far beyond all of that. So I, I thought it was pretty interesting. I, I don't know. Um, how did you feel about that as a sort of like a storytelling choice, James? I thought it was interesting that they're able to basically have it both ways. You know, they're able to have it as a feminist moment and also boobs. You know, it's like they're <laughs> able to, to do both. You know, they're, 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 they're able to do this so that you completely, uh, you know, you know, believe it as this sort of anti-patriarchy sort of action and that this is empowering to her. And, you know, she's also, you know, hashtag free the nipple topless as, as well. And, you know, those two things to me at least, uh, didn't feel in conflict with each other. It it felt like the, you know, you're able to do both to have the, the nude fire goddess and at the same time, uh, have that sort of uh, feminist uplift arc at the same time. From reading the books, 
Danny's storyline always feels like it is rooted in a very different kind of fantasy literature. You know, like when you kind of first join uh, the show, you know, with all these characters, you you have all these people who are in Westeros and they're very much in a sort of recognizable, like, okay, this is sort of like Lord of the Rings, but with less magic version of fantasy. Whereas, you know, Danny has always been really kind of more in, in the Robert E. Howard, like, you know, Conan the Barbarian. She's, she really feels to me as if she is this sort of in, in the books, a very young girl who finds herself at the center of a story that, you know, it classically would have been told with some huge Conan style protagonist. And, you know, that whole storytelling was also just much more pulpy and much sexier and much more like, you know, adolescent to a certain degree compared to what, what Tolkien was doing. And so I don't know, this was really a a callback to me that what makes her storyline so interesting is it is almost kind of a reclamation of of that storyline for women, because obviously in, in most Conan the Barbarian style uh, stories, women are totally background characters or totally incidental, or they're witches who are trying to kill Conan. So I, I, I don't know. I, it feels to me as if, you know, as the writers keep moving ahead with Danny's storyline, they're digging into what originally made that storyline tick in a lot of really interesting ways. Yeah, and you had the clear echo at the end with uh, everybody bombing down, including uh, Ser Jorah, and now this time joined by by Dario. It's sort of a callback to, to the end of uh, season one. And for Danny, what this means now is, you know, she obviously has an even bigger army. I guess she, uh, you know, we, we weren't really sure before that she needed a bigger army, but apparently now she has one. I can only imagine that um, that the Sons of the Harpy wouldn't stand up very well to the Dothraki. I have two things to say to that. First of all, I love how one of Danny's other superpowers is getting large groups of people to kneel and bow down to her. That's that's a key superpower to have. Second of all, all I could think of at, at the end of, of last night's episode, um, besides you know pondering what exactly Danny's fire invulnerability, how that works, I was thinking Dothraki versus White Walkers. What do we think about those odds? <laughs> yeah, that sounds very ice and fire, doesn't it? Uh, you know, which actually reminds me of of my one of my favorite little bits in this is uh, when uh, uh, Ser Jorah and Dario were infiltrating and Ser Jorah is being beaten down that fight. And he does the the action movie trope of, oh, I'm going to throw sand in my opponent's face. But it's like a desert dwelling Dothraki who just kind of looks like slightly annoyed. <laughs> and it's, it's like, of course, that didn't work. It's like throwing a snowball at a white walker is not going to work. <laughs> I was actually on set for when they burned the temple down. And that was absolutely amazing to witness because it was the, the flames were like 100 feet high. There's so many gradients of color in them that you can't even imagine. I've never seen a fire that big. I've never felt heat that hot. And David Benioff, you know, was pointing out that the show, whenever possible, always uses real fire. And that may seem sort of odd thing to say for for someone who who's not you know hugely familiar with like TV movie production nowadays. But so much of that that you see in TV and movies when you see flames of any kind is usually CGI. And they always try and do it for real, even when it's dragon fire. It's 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 the dragon's not there, but the fire is actually there because because they feel like. It just doesn't quite look right when you do it otherwise. Did you uh, bow down while, while the fire was was uh, happening? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was standing back behind the crowd when that when that was happening, and uh, and there was no and no. In case you're wondering, there was no naked Amelia Clark in front of them. Uh, her part was filmed in a studio in Belfast, uh, separate from that. 
but it, as amazing as it looked in the show, it's like it doesn't really capture what what's what's like to, to see that happen uh, live at like four a.m. in the middle of Spanish desert. It's pretty, it was pretty incredible. Maybe we should shift gears to uh, we've been talking so much about the desert. Let's go to the exact opposite of the desert. One of the most exciting things about the last couple seasons of Game of Thrones for me as a book reader is the fact that uh, characters who uh, have not crossed paths in the books are are beginning to decisively cross paths in the TV show, um, which is happening in a major way because now uh, it, it, it seems as if everybody is going to the wall. Everybody is going to the absolute worst and like most dangerous place in Westeros. Um, last night's episode began with Sansa uh, and Pod and Brienne all appearing up at the wall, just in time, by the way, right as John was thinking about leaving. And it, it was sort of funny, like watching the episode for a second, like you were kind of like, oh my God, is John going to leave right before Sansa gets here? Yeah. Is he going to leave out like the back door right as when she's coming at the front door? <laughs> and it's going to be, oh, another near miss. You, you, you know, you think for a moment what it would have been like for them if they arrived and Sir Alistair Thorne was still in charge and Jon Snow was dead and how many bad ways that could have gone. For once in Sansa's life, she has the benefit of, like, good timing and, like, you know, arriving someplace at the exact right time as opposed to getting to King's Landing right as it was going to hell, getting to the Eerie right as Littlefinger was taking over. Like, you know, she she has been a sort of, uh, you know, black cat for a lot of the uh, great houses of uh, Westeros. Um, so, James, I almost teared up when Sansa saw Jon Snow. It was interesting because these are not characters who ever really interacted in any major way. And, like, did she have any scenes with Jon Snow, even, like, in, in the pilot? She had <laughs> one scene. She had, If you go back and watch the arrival of King Robert Baratheon uh, into the courtyard, she is there, and Jon Snow is, like, in the row behind her. And they all look incredibly young and the pacing is like is like wow this is sort of kind of leisurely paced you know back then but yeah yeah that that, that was that was their only scene together and um and uh you know we also didn't really have much of a sense from the show at least what their relationship was like Sansa sort of made it very clear in their first scene together that, uh, you know, she had been not so nice to him. And, you know, if if we recall way back into the early days of Game of Thrones, you know, Jon was a bastard and he wasn't necessarily much liked. It felt to me as if the show was kind of trying to almost kind of drift off of, um, you know, Cat hadn't really been that nice to Jon. And, you know, since Sansa was always kind of closest to her mother, it felt like the show was really kind of hoping that you remembered like that kind of relationship. Um, but I, I was just so struck by the fact that, so first of all, they reunite, and, you know, more than anything, I think, you feel it so deeply because, you know, you just think about all the horrible things that have happened to both of these people in the years since they were parted. I was so struck by the fact that in their reunion, which is, which is you know, first of all, like, very emotional— you quickly get to a point where Sansa becomes, like, the really aggressive, uh, you know, high-status, powerful person in that relationship. I mean, she really finds John at a moment when it's not even clear that he has a plan, really, besides just kind of running away. It speaks to me about, you know, just how much the show has done for Sansa and really what Sophie Turner has brought to to the character because there was a time not that long ago when, you know, she was, she was practically, like, the Ramsay Bolton of the show in the sense that nobody really liked her. And just in that moment, her just kind of saying, like, no, John, like, 
we need to take our families our family's home back. I mean, you know, we did, we, we need to take the North back. I don't know. You just felt that in a way that was so strong. And like, you know, it was, it's great that everything that that character has gone through, you know, to see her arrive at this point of, you know, sort of, sort of being like the one Stark left. Who's kind of like, we need to take our home back. Yeah. This is Sansa Stark, the way we have never seen her before anywhere close to this before. And it, it's interesting because you watch that and, you know, you think about all, the controversy in season five over what happened between her and Ramsey. And, you know, I wonder whether for people who really hated that, that choice by the writers, whether this makes them feel differently about that or whether they still feel the same way about that. You know, obviously the writers have said that everything that was happening in season five was happening for a reason. And we're starting to see that reason play out and with Sansa, both her goals and in terms of the way she's changed. So clearly that was a metamorphosizing uh, situation for her. And, you know, and while no one ever sort of cheers for a character to go through that at the same time, you know, from a writing standpoint, you look at that and you're like, okay, I understand why they did that then and now what that means and and how that's involved her character. But what was your feeling about it? For me, it's really hard because I really started to change my mind on Sansa. And, you know, not that I ever, like, didn't like her. I mean, it, it was just more like she was one of those characters where she was kind of so trapped in all of the insane drama of King's Landing. And for a couple seasons there, you know, every scene with her was really, like, this tragic repetition in a way, you know, it was like, oh, you know, maybe the Tyrells will save you. Nope, that's not going to happen. Um, you know, maybe someone else will come along. Nope. And, and and so, you know, for me, it was just hard because the the ending sequence of season four, uh, when you see that she is now sort of like working with Littlefinger and she's really decided to sort of, you know, it felt to me like that was her taking control of her destiny. And so in, in a way to me, it's just hard because everything that happened to her in season five you could say that it was very much kind of leading up to this. It feels to me like it was almost kind of a deviation towards what what feels to me like was ultimately her journey all along, which is now where she, you know, her, her moment last night of saying, you know, we need to take back our home and, you know, we need to do... Th that feels to me like that all kind of comes from the end of season four when you see her beginning to play the Game of Thrones. And, and so, you know... Anything to do with Ramsey Bolton at this point, I'm I, I'm a little unsteady just because it, it really feels to me like what the show has done is build him up into one of the sort of final level bosses before the final level, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Like, like, you know, last night's episode made it very clear that, you know, if there is a showdown happening this year, it is a showdown up north between the forces of everybody we like versus Ramsey Bolton. It feels to me like the show has done a lot to sort of build him up because after he's gone then we get down to you know the, the absolute elemental like you know ice versus fire white walkers versus humans possibly Cersei versus Arya moments that you know I think the show will ultimately end with what's interesting too is we now have this super group of characters 
that have banded together that we never would have predicted predicted like a year ago. I mean, at Sir Davos joining forces with Melisandre, joining forces with Brienne, joining forces with, with uh, you know Jon Snow and Sansa. You know, it's like whoa, where did this Avengers like uh, collective come from? And it's such a rocky, unsteady. Uh, relationship too, as we saw last night with uh, with the scene uh, between Sir Davos and Melisandre and Brienne, where where they just started to bring up all their sort of questions and grievances, and then it just got cut short right before everybody started killing each other. I was also really intrigued, uh, and some people were talking about this on on social media. Uh, I would have never imagined uh, Brienne being in the same room as a uh, Tormund, um, but uh, now that it's happened, I'm I'm intrigued to see uh, what happens next. I mean, like I feel like if if nothing else, I I, I want to see those two like back to back in a like battle sequence, like you know, um, Captain America and Thor style. You know, those are those are two very tall badass people who who, who could take down uh, lots of knights. My own sense is, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit. You know, Danny over in her corner of the world is sort of building up her island of misfit toys. You know, between Tyrion and the Spider and all these people who you know in in Westeros wouldn't have been allowed in the room. I like how now that seems to be like echoing up in the north where, you know, anybody who's kind of left over from whether you're a former follower of Renly or someone who swore an oath to a a dead Stark or if you're following Stannis, all are welcome up at this, uh, you know, kind of army of more so X-Men than than Avengers, I think. And also down south as well, because you have uh, Cersei, you know, uh, joining forces, you know, seemingly uh, with both her Uncle Kevin and um, the Queen of Thorns, too. So you have them coming together to form a little power group as well. Can you explain to me what exactly their plan is, James? because everything that they were saying in that small council meeting, all I could hear was like, oh, this is not going to go well. It's a perfectly conceived plan, Darren. I don't see how anything could possibly go wrong with it. I'm sure, I mean, as we know, whenever somebody announces a detailed plan that they're going to follow in Game of Thrones, it always goes perfectly correctly. The way I uh, heard this series of falling dominoes is... That because the High Sparrow was torturing Sir Loras, Marjorie has agreed to, to basically plead guilty and repent and do a walk of shame. And then the High Sparrow told that to Tommen, who told that to Cersei, who went and told that to her fragmented small council. And she was able to use that to uh, get uh, Lady Elena to get it on her side with her plan. And her plan is to have uh, the uh, Tyrell army come into King's Landing and take control. Now, normally you can't do that, uh, but... She's also asking her Uncle Kevin, who controls the City Watch, to stand down. Uh, And Kevin was concerned because this is not an order coming from the king and his orders come from the king. But she's pointing out, hey, the king didn't tell you to have your forces stand down, did he? He's like, well, no. So, okay, they're going to have their forces stand down. The Tyrell forces will come in. The Tyrell forces will take out the Faith Militant. And then Sir Loras will be freed and he'll be fine. Marjorie will be freed and she'll be fine. Uh, Lancel, who's like that, you know, Scientology brainwashed uh, son of uh, Uncle Kevin, who's with the Faith Militant, he'll be freed and he'll be fine. The The High Sparrow will die and the everybody will live happily ever after. And King Tommen won't know about any of this uh, and it will just be sitting in his chamber petting Sir Pounce. <laughs> 
Speaking of the High Sparrow, every time someone walks into his sort of like, you know, special little room, it's hard for me because I was uh, raised Catholic. And for me, like that room just feels like when you're going to the confessional. So clearly, like, you know, for, for, for me, uh, you know, there's a lot buried inside when I when I say this. I always just want someone to punch the High Sparrow in the face. Um, no disrespect to Jonathan Price, who's an incredible actor. But I, I really felt like last night's episode was such a showcase for him because we finally learned something about his background, which I found sort of fascinating. And it was, it was a great scene and it was, it was shot in a really eloquent fashion. Um, what did you think about the High Sparrow's kind of personal revelations? Yeah, it was interesting to get to the High Sparrow's origin story that he was, uh, you know, he's like the now barefoot shoemaker of, of fancy footwear for King's Landing, who suddenly just had enough of his high flying lifestyle and repented. And that's really a very you know common origin story for a, a lot of religious leaders. You know, the the whole I you know I used to be a sinner like you. You know, I I used to have all those same feelings, and then I went too far, and then I decided to throw it all away and you know live my life for God. So it had both a feeling of a unique original speech, yet one that's also familiar compared to ones we've heard in real life. I do appreciate how the show is sort of making him into like the combination of Jesus and Karl Marx. Um, and it's especially interesting to me, too, because, again, like at this point of the show, you have so many different people who their long-term goal is to upset the natural order of things. And, you know, with Danny and her people, it's colored in a lot of very specific ways. Like, you know, she wants to rule and she wants to rule in a very different way. It did strike me, though, that, you know, with the High Sparrow, everything he's saying, I, I think, like, I somewhat support theoretically. Like, you know, we, we live in a society that is not ruled by, you know, nobles and royalty uh, and, uh, you know, doesn't, you know, doesn't have this sort of, you know, feudal system. So on one hand, he's sort of a more modern figure. Um, but on the other hand, he, he he wants to kill and maim most of our favorite characters uh, on on the show. So there is there is that that always kind of uh, gets in the way of uh, liking him too much. Yeah, his whole gentle demeanor is wonderfully offset by everything that he actually does, which is very calculated and devious and sadistic. Uh, having those two parts of him is what makes him a compelling character. All right, and now it's time for an exciting trivia question. Uh, each week on this show, we'll ask you trivia. Uh, you send your answer to gotpodcast.com. We've got all kinds of prizes. This week's trivia question, Book of the Stranger, the episode that we just watched, was an episode all about supportive siblings. Sansa joined forces with John, Marjorie gave Loras a pep talk, and Theon swore to support Yara. But siblings haven't always gotten along on Game of Thrones, and the results have been fatal. Now, James, we've lost a lot of brothers and sisters on this show, but one of the great houses of Westeros was dominated, way back in the pilot, by three powerful siblings. And now, in season six, all of those siblings are dead. For this week's trivia question prize, email gotpodcast at ew.com with the names of those three powerful siblings who were all alive when the show started and are all dead now. They're from one of the great houses of Westeros. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the the seat of power of one of the great houses of Westeros that isn't doing too well right now. Now, we talked about this earlier. Ramsey Bolton, 
What are we going to do with Ramsey Bolton, James? I'm starting to get the impression that he's not a nice person. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's just something about the season, something about his scenes. I wasn't sure after last week, and now I'm really feeling that that this is a bad guy. And... Um, you know, maybe he deserves punishment. Last night's episode, it got to like around the midpoint, and I was sort of wondering to myself, boy, this is a really happy episode. I, you said it yourself. This is like one of the happiest episodes of, of, of Game of Thrones that we've had in a really long time. Like, I, I, I wonder what is different. And I realized, oh yeah, like we haven't seen Ramsay Bolton like horrifically mutilate anyone yet this week. Like, you know, this this explains you know why I'm in a slightly better mood. Smash cut to Winterfell. Ramsey Bolton is 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 slicing open an apple as only someone with a flayed man uh, banner can do. In walks Osha. Now, now I I'm a big fan of Osha, e- e- even though her presence on the show uh, forced them to change Asha Greyjoy's name to Yara, which still pisses me off to no end. But it was great to see her back, and she. She had the great line about, uh, you know, do you eat the skin after you flay them? No. Well, then I've seen worse. And Ramsey kind of smiled a little bit. In that moment, with that smile, for just one second, I was kind of like, oh, you know what? Like, obviously he's a bad guy, but maybe he's going to be like, you know, a bad guy the way that, like Patrick Bateman is a bad guy. Where, you know, yes, yes, he's bad, but, you know, he, he certainly is fun to watch. And I was just thinking that to myself when he when he horrifically killed Osha, a character who hasn't been on the show for, for two or three years and was only on long enough to get killed off. I mean, Ramsey Bolton is just a, a, a complete washout as a as a sort of a positive ruling personality. <laughs> well, what's interesting in retrospect is you look back at it and you're like, wait a second, then why did he have her bathed and <laughs> and lead her to expect something else? And it's like, oh, he was just messing with her and messing with us. That was the only reason he did that. He didn't have to do that, but, you know, he figured, ah, let's have some uh, fun with this. Yeah, pretty much as, as soon as she started eyeballing the knife, I was like, uh-oh, because, you know, somebody might eventually uh, kill Ramsey, but it sure as hell ain't going to be Osha. So I, you had to figure that she wasn't long for this world as soon as she th- started thinking about making that. That move. James, uh, it's time for uh, the most exciting segment on our show, Dark Wings, Dark Words. <coughs> Quick reminder that listeners can always email us at gotpodcast.ew.com. If you have any questions or concerns or conspiracy theories, we love those. Uh, question from, I'm going to mispronounce this, Nigel Rick. <clears throat> I think the scene with Davos, Melisander, and Brienne is going to have serious repercussions for the Oath Keeper. This show has always been about the fallout of one's tiny decisions can have, and Brienne basically gloating to Davos that he executed his king and she executed his king just screams bad choice. Considering the very pained and hurt look that Liam Cunningham has after hearing she was the one who ended Stannis's life, tells me that Brienne may have a reckoning heading her way. What do you think... James Hibbard. Davos doesn't seem like the grudge-holding type. He's so pragmatic uh, that although I could see that bothering him, I don't know if he'd let it interfere 
with business moving forward, but I could be wrong. I mean, he, he could surprise me. Uh, Brienne, on the other hand, very much seems like the grudge holding type, like, like the type of person that like 50 years later would like still be like, Hey, you killed that person that I knew at that one time. And you know, you're going to suffer for it. So, uh, her feelings towards Melisandre, on the other hand, I feel like that definitely might have ramifications. I agree. Like, uh, you know, um, if there's going to be like uh, some, you know, bittersweet notes in the ultimate kind of Game of Thrones finale, like, you know, because if, if if we assume that, like, you know, some things will go right and like someone good will ultimately sit on the Iron Throne, you have to imagine that like there will still be some kind of like melancholy moments. And, and one of those moments that I, I, I just imagined so strongly after last night was like Brienne and Melisandre like helping to defeat the great evil. And then in the moment uh, uh, of their victory, Brienne just pulls out her sword and slices off Melisander's head. <laughs> so that's 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 kind of what I think is happening. Yeah, I don't I don't really see Davos, uh, uh, you know, picking on on Brienne anytime soon. No, I do see him holding a grudge against Melisandre if he, if, if uh, he finds about Shireen. By the end, everyone is probably going to want uh, Melisandre dead, except for Jon Snow. Actually, ooh, that could be interesting. All right, but we'll 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 discuss that in a, a later episode. Um, question from listener Miguel Lander: Do you think Rickon is dead meat? I'm thinking his murder will serve as a taunt to provoke Jon and Sansa to attack Winterfell once they meet up, perhaps as the show's version of the Pink Letter. Uh, Miguel sent that email before last night's episode aired, so really good guess with regards to the Pink Letter coming into play. But Rickon is not dead yet, and uh, James, you were explaining to me there's this whole theory out there about the Great Northern Conspiracy, right? Yeah, yeah, with the uh, with the, the bannermen that have pledged to Bolton, like the Umbers and the Karstarks, you know, the idea is is that these houses that used to support the Starks are actually not really supporting Ramsay, and they are secretly maneuvering against him, and their plan is to restore Rickon back uh, at Winterfell and in control of it. Because I think a lot of people were upset about the idea about these houses pledging to to the Boltons and this idea of, well, maybe it's all part of a ruse. I love that idea, and it feels very Song of Ice and Fire to me. Um, you know, Game of Thrones is always a, like, five-ring circus, but, but the books are always a, a ten-ring circus, and, and this feels like a real ten-ring circus thing. Um, I find it hard to believe just because, like, we don't really know very much about the Bannermen on the TV show. And also, I mean, like, uh, if this was the plan, like, I, I'm not so sure that putting him next to a guy who, who just killed one of his closest allies, I, I don't know, that, that that seems like a pretty out there uh, possibility. Yeah, yeah, I thought it seemed a little bit far-fetched as well, just because, uh, just from a coherent standpoint, point because I think when people watch a show they're like wait who's that guy again who's that person again you know and it's hard (laughs) enough to sort of remember who some of these bannermen are you know then to also keep track of the idea oh they're actually being deceptive about what they're saying it seems like asking a huge thing of the audience to follow along with that 
the show is generally very good, I think, at like, you know, it, it, it takes the whole tableau of Song of Ice and Fire, but it, it also very helpfully identifies like here are characters you should pay attention to and who you shouldn't. Although I will say I do appreciate how um, I'm not sure that like a lot of viewers have even really clocked to who this guy is, but um, Lord Royce. Who was who was taking care of uh, Robin Aaron while uh, Littlefinger was gone? Unless I'm mistaken, that guy is the father of one of the knights who died in the very first scene of Game of Thrones, right? That's Yon Royce, and I believe he's the father of Waymar Royce, who was um, one of the uh, one of the uh, Knights Watchmen who, way back in like scene one, episode one, uh, goes up and uh, gets killed by the White Walkers. So you know, I I, I do think like you know. Yes, this is a show that requires you to know a lot of characters, but I, you know, I'm not necessarily sure that like uh, you know that's going to play into uh, what's happening uh, this season quite as much. All right, uh, that about wraps it up for EW's Game of Thrones podcast. I'm excited uh, to come back next week. Maybe we'll talk about some King Smoot. Maybe we'll talk about some uh, some uh, brand time travel. Uh, we'll see what happens next week on EW's Game of Thrones podcast.